Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. This episode is brought to you by Millipore Sigma, a leading company for innovative, trusted products for genomic and protein sample prep, reliable antibodies, proteins and enzymes, advanced cell culture, and lab water solutions. They provide researchers with the best in-class technologies, expertise, and services to accelerate discovery, including extensively validated prestige antibodies, now offered in convenient small pack sizes. Most infectious disease research focuses on the battle between host and pathogen. While an individual's abilities to resist infection and combat microbes are important, this process is only half of the story. Nikki Spodge from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with David Schneider, Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University, to learn why it is crucial to consider how organisms tolerate disease, and to explore how he maps the paths individuals take through infection and back to health. When treating infections, most people assume that the main goal is to decrease the number of pathogens in the body. However, a host's ability to control microbe load, referred to as resistance, is only one part of surviving an infectious disease. David Schneider is interested in the whole picture of infection, from illness to recovery. To understand this complex process, he studies resistance, but also focuses on disease tolerance, which is a defense response that limits the effect of microbes on the host's health. Tolerance is a measure of how sick an organism gets or how much damage they experience, either from the immune response or the pathogens directly, in relation to how many microbes cause the infection. Tolerance is underappreciated in immunology fields, although the concept has circulated in the plant world for over 100 years. People working in agriculture, they noticed that there would be crops that would have really serious fungal infections, but they still made fruit. So they decided, well, that's useful. Let's grow more of these plants so that they'll be able to produce fruit even in the face of disease. The idea really didn't cross over to animals until 2007. Andrew Reed and Lars Rayberg published the first paper where they looked at mice infected with malaria and basically said, hey, different strains of mice have different tolerance to the infection. Working at the University of Edinburgh, Reed and Rayberg plotted tolerance as the relationship between malaria parasite density and measurements of mouse health, like anemia and weight loss. Soon after, Schneider and Janelle Ayers, one of his graduate students at the time, explored tolerance in Drosophila by infecting mutant flies with the bacterium Listeria monocytogenes. Half of their mutants died due to high bacterial densities, indicating that the mutations caused a decrease in pathogen resistance. Surprisingly, a number of the mutants succumbed to their infections without an increase in bacterial burden compared to wild-type flies. Their tolerance to infection had decreased even at lower microbe loads, which increased symptom severity. Measuring tolerance is not trivial because many factors influence an organism's health. So how do researchers choose what constitutes appropriate measures of health in the lab? It's especially hard to define health when you're dealing with an animal that you can't ask, how are you feeling? We've done it by looking at behavior, If you put a wheel in their cage, they'll run on the wheel, but when they get sick, they just stop running earlier. It's not like they run slower. They run the same speed, but they just don't run for as long. That feels a little different from 
how I feel when I get sick. I feel like I'm slow moving. So we'll, we'll measure some gross behaviors like that. We'll measure weight. We can measure anemia in a mouse. We can measure its temperature. Uh, and then we, we've started measuring what happens to their metabolism. And so that gives us a read on what's happening in the whole body when we look at circulating metabolites. So we can see from their metabolism that they stop eating, they start burning fat instead of burning sugar. We can see that their kidneys start doing poorly, that their liver is doing poorly. Sickness is a whole body issue. It's not just what cells are circulating in your blood. It's how all your organs are acting. And so we want to look at the whole body's response to an infection. Understanding which parameters affect tolerance in a meaningful way is complicated, as genetic differences between organisms of the same species change the response to infection. Additionally, an organism's ability to tolerate one infection does not indicate its ability to survive others. Janelle Ayers did this really exciting experiment. There was a gene in the fly that we were sure was involved in immunity, but two groups had published that they could not find an immune effect for this particular gene and concluded that therefore this gene played no role in the immune response. Janelle tested this by infecting fruit flies lacking this gene with eight different microbes, and she got five different results. Uh, resistance went up and resistance went down and tolerance went up and tolerance went down and also nothing happened. So what that suggests is the immune system doesn't evolve to be perfect at fighting everything. It evolves to be optimal so that it can fight a lot of different things, but there will be trade-offs. So if you're good at fighting one thing, you're going to be bad at fighting another. And if you become more tolerant of one thing, you might become less tolerant or less resistant of another. So you have to understand the rules. If we had a drug that affected tolerance and you just gave it randomly because a person was suffering an infection, odds are you'd do harm as much as you would do good. In addition to infecting flies with bacteria, Schneider's team studies malaria in mice. A majority of mice survive infection with the malaria parasite, which allows Schneider to analyze blood samples over time to see what happens as the animals come back to health. Various parameters, such as parasite load and numbers of red blood cells and immune cells, change throughout infection and recovery. Schneider builds complex 3D maps from this data to display tolerance in an infected population. What he learns about malaria from the mice may be applied in the future to humans, who also demonstrate malaria tolerance. Children who are repeatedly infected with malaria through their lives because they live in a hyperendemic area, when they're between 5 and 10, they actually become tolerant to the infection. So the kids seem healthy, they're running around in the playground, but if you take a blood sample, they're full of parasites. That tells us that humans naturally go through a tolerant state, which means tolerance is an important part of the disease here. Take a mouse, infect it with plasmodium, agent that causes malaria. Parasite levels go up and down, and then you would see the health drop and come back. It turns out the health doesn't drop when the parasites are at their peak. The health drops two days later. So if you took peak parasite load and minimum health and plotted those against each other, that would give you a tolerance curve. Disease tolerance is a property of populations. Tolerance curves built from longitudinal animal model studies provide useful information about host health and disease. However, it would be unethical to obtain such data from sick people with acute infections. Clinicians should treat their patients right away, rather than wait to assess their condition at peak pathogen load or minimum health. Recently, Schneider has been quantitating resilience, which incorporates both resistance and tolerance to disease, and represents the entire route an infected host takes as it returns to health. 
When Schneider began investigating the relationship between disease and health, he made linear plots and saw that as microbes increase, health decreases. Then during recovery, microbes decrease and health increases. However, after further exploration, he realized that the path to recovery is not simply a straight line. I read a paper from uh, the 1970s on forest ecology about how interactions work between insects that eat the trees and how the trees rebound afterwards. And it turns out that it forms a looping cycle where you get a lot of insects and then the trees disappear and then you go back. And the route back to health isn't the same as the route to sickness. So we started looking for that in data for animal infection. You can look at the data and find things that are out of phase with each other so that when you plot them, they form a circle. And I think the circle is useful. You can actually use it to tell time. So you can say, this individual is basically at day six of the infection. And if you're doing an infection in animals in the lab, that doesn't matter because you know when you infected them. But if you're looking at infected children in the wild, you don't know when they got infected. And knowing that they're on day six is really helpful because it lets you compare them only to other children that are day six. Schneider's 2D disease maps plot two parameters, such as microbe and red blood cell numbers in the case of malaria. As parasite load increases on the x-axis, red blood cells decrease on the y-axis as they are destroyed. Eventually, an organism's immune system fights off the infection, which decreases parasite load and allows red blood cell numbers to return to normal. Plotted this way, the data form a loop that Schneider uses to track an individual's progress through early infection, sickness, recovery, and sometimes death. The animals are at lowest health when most of the microbes are cleared. At this point, tolerance mechanisms must repair damage so that an individual can recover and return to health. Resilient individuals tend to make smaller loops through the disease map and make a tight curve back to health. Individuals who are less resilient may take a wider arc or even diverge from the curve and die. With these maps, Schneider discovered parameters that predict malaria outcomes in infected mice. When we measure diverse mice, if we look on day zero before we've infected the animals, the animals that live and the animals that die, we can separate them based on their metabolism. There's some things circulating in the mice that die that are present at lower concentrations in the mice that survive. And so I think on day zero, we can tell who's going to make it and who isn't. We were also able to do that looking at red blood cells versus reticulocytes, which are like baby red blood cells. And if a mouse at day zero has an odd ratio of those two, it's not going to make it. So certainly you can tell on day zero, which gives me hope that you can tell at some other point that they're not going to make it. Humans heterozygous for the sickle cell trait have malaria resilience. By analyzing existing data on children with malaria, Schneider's team verified that the mouse model reflects what happens in humans. Children with a sickle cell trait have red blood cell to reticulocyte ratios that mimic those of resilient mice. A couple of years ago, I was invited to a meeting and I was surprised that at this meeting they were having a debate of whether my work was true or not. And I thought, oh, you know, I, uh, I'm not getting this across to people. I better do a better job. With that goal in mind, Schneider devised creative ways to visualize his tolerance and resilience data. First, he tinkered with children's toys to make a stop motion animation. 
Using a toy fortress to represent the human body and castle guards to represent the immune system, he explained resistance with armed guards fending off a dragon with swords and cannons. To endure the siege, people within the castle rebuilt damaged walls and obtained and distributed food. Metaphors for tolerance mechanisms such as tissue repair and cellular fuel acquisition. Together, both offensive and defensive parameters enhanced the castle's survival during the dragon attack. To describe infection and recovery, Schneider now builds portable sculptures from his fly and mouse data, consisting of multiple parameters that represent the health of an animal and the state of the infection. His sculptures are complex, mapping out disease parameters through 3D space. Three-dimensional graphs on paper are kind of hard to see. You have to move it around to really get the three-dimensionality. So I've tried building three-dimensional objects, first out of plywood, and now I make jewelry. I kind of like the jewelry because you can always carry it around with you. So if you're on an airplane and someone asks you what you do, you know, you can show them a bracelet you're wearing. His science sculpture collection includes various intricate moving structures that display the ebb and flow of disease parameters better than static diagrams. One example is a clock that, rather than telling time, indicates where an individual is during the course of an infection. By interacting with these creative models, Schneider finds that people understand his data better than ever before. Back in the lab, Schneider continues to study malaria and other infections to see if there are general parameters that promote tolerance and resilience, or if there are specific trade-offs between surviving one infection over another. Building these maps for human infection could inform treatment and drug development. My dream is this would be a useful tool clinically someday. If someone comes in early with an infection, you can look at them and say, based on your physiology and where you are today, we either think you're going to be fine and um, we can give you this minor treatment and you can go home. Uh, or you could tell them, you know, you've actually finished most of the disease. You're on your way back to recovery. Or you could look at the person and say, uh-oh, you're really not in a good position and people in your position tend to do really poorly. We're going to take extra care of you. And I think that what our approach does is it gives you the whole curve and helps you understand the whole trajectory. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Nikki Sparich. You can view David Schneider's stop-motion animated movie describing tolerance and read explanations of his wood and jewelry models on his personal WordPress blog titled Phase Curve Blog. And thanks to Millipore Sigma for sponsoring this episode. Please join us next month as we discuss diagnosing Parkinson's disease via scent biomarkers. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.